You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Perth Property Show. Today, we are talking building, but not for a development side. We're talking about building for your own home. Obviously, it's its own niche topic. It's its own pros and cons, its own pitfalls, its mistakes and opportunities. And we're going to talk about that whole industry today with one of the most ethical sales reps I have met in Western Australia in that space. His name's Michael Lazaro. He works at Ventura. Michael, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Trent. Today, mate, we want to talk about that whole space of house and land packages, the process involved, dealing, wading through the the contracts and the line items, the specifications, the offer and acceptance forms, all that stuff that falls into place when you rock up at a new land estate, whether it's in Ellenbrook or Baldivis or Alcamos or Lansdale or uh, a really expensive little land estate that's in the western suburbs and it's just a very small spot there. It's all There's a lot of sales, there's a lot of marketing, there's a lot of really beautiful photos and display homes, a lot to get your head around as a first time or second time builder. Where does it all start with you in terms of the where you need to be focusing to make sure you're getting bang for buck and to make sure that at the end of the day, you're going to come out of this 12 to 18 month period as a happy customer, not feeling like at some point along the line, you've been fleeced. Well, firstly, uh, I would recommend starting with the finance. So chatting to a finance broker and looking at the different options there. So instead of going directly to your bank for some finance advice, I'd recommend speaking to a broker. They can compare the different options and products out there and find something that's suitable for you. Why is that? Is that because it frames your budget? Yeah, absolutely. And and also, I, I think a lot of people can be misled by builders out there. You hear a lot of negative stories with particularly the first home buyer market builders where they no deposit options. Um, I, I feel how like... How does that work? How How is it possible and legal for companies to market to people to say, you put no money down and we'll get you a $400,000 house and land? Well, I don't think it's right. I think it's uh, clever marketing that preys on people that, you know, they want to be in their own home, but can't necessarily. They really afford shouldn't it. be. So, yeah, yeah, correct. So it's something that I don't agree with. I think that they should seek independent advice through their own financial advisor. The next step would be going and visiting some different land estates. So, at this stage, I wouldn't be consulting with a builder. I guess one of the misconceptions are with home and land packages that you need to buy the land through the builder and it's not the case. So I would first of all be doing my research into different land areas. Because who owns the land? Well, the developer. In in some that cases... That might be like a Saddley or a Stockland, Stockland or a Peat. Correct. Yep. Yeah. You've also got your smaller, um, small-time developers as well. So I would be doing my research where the land estates are. Find out where you want to live. And also, based on the results from your broker, you can start to set a bit of a picture on what you can spend. So I would go and look at the land areas. The builders themselves, that would be third in line. Finance first, block second, build a third. In regards to picking your block, obviously there's going to be a time there where you've bought a block, you're, pa- you're settled on it, you're paying a mortgage on it. How does that differ to maybe a development where you might be able to line up you know, that house and land sort of package or is it really a case where, yeah, you got to buy that land and you're paying for land you can't even live on for a while? I would recommend as a first home buyer, always packaging your house and land together. And that doesn't mean 
buying the land off the builder, as we mentioned before. That simply means aligning your finance and settlement date on the land with your building contract. So, so that, that you settle when the build finishes or when it starts? So you're settling on the land when the contract's for the build are ready. So generally, there's a rule of thumb. There's a six-month office process and a six-month construction time. So let's say six to eight weeks into that office process, your contract should be ready. At that same time, you should be ready to settle on the land. That reduces fees with the bank. You've got one loan application. Uh, it also means that the first home buyer's grant will be taken off at that stage. If you fail to settle on both at the same time, you will not receive your grant until the slab has been laid. And that Another- can be a, really a financial hurdle for a lot of people who have maybe just got enough to get their 20% or need that first homeowner's grant to get there so they're not paying LMI or not paying too much LMI. So it's important to really have that support along the way with that finance to match it up, right? 100%. A lot of people are using a portion of their first home buyer's grant as part of their deposit as well. So it depends how you structure it with your broker. Again, going back to why it is important uh, to deal with an independent broker, that would be one of the main reasons for me. One of the concerns that I have and this isn't a reflection on any on any particular company, is that it can be a little bit of a stitch up when it comes to speaking to the broker in-house at a building company. Now, I know that it's a tough question for you to answer because you work at a building company, but would you suggest that there might be some risk there with the idea that the broker is going to, in the least ethical situation, a broker will find out how much someone can afford and then that information is passed to the building consultant and their job really, their goal is to whatever price point, just jack that contract up with as much unnecessary things as possible because at the end of the day, the bank should probably give them the money for it. Is that a risk? Look, I probably shouldn't be saying this, but I'm going to be honest and I think it can be. So depending on which builder you're dealing with, I feel like the broker is there to help control the client for a building consultant. Now, there's brokers out there that work for building companies that are fantastic and I couldn't recommend them highly enough. On the other hand, it also swings the other way. So I think if you don't want to feel pressured, if you want the best advice, go and chat to an independent broker. That way, you're not going to feel pressured by the builder and you know that you're getting an unbiased opinion as well. Do your research with regards to who you should be dealing with with a broker. That's what I would be recommending. Okay. So have your own broker. Speak independently to the land sales office representative and do your own negotiation on the price of that land. Look, it doesn't hurt to to probably engage with a builder around that same time to see if they can help with the price of the land. Uh, A perfect example, I negotiated with a land developer in Chittering today for my clients. The block was first listed at 255. I've been dealing with this um, land agent for over seven years. We managed to get the price down to 238. So in order to make it work for the client's finance, so us as a builder were able to contribute some um, as well as the, the land developer. So we do have strong relationships with land developers. What I would try and avoid, I would avoid allowing some sales reps to push you into certain estates because there's no doubt about it, there are incentives out there. for There are kickbacks. So that's why I recommend to do your own research up front. Maybe go to those land estates first and then help the builder allow you to narrow it down. That makes a lot of sense. Because having within reason a level of control over that, when it comes to finding that block, would you have any sort of suggestions as to which block would be maybe the most cost-effective or getting the most bang for your buck in terms of dimensions or elevation or position? There's a couple of things. The first question that clients always ask me, what block size should we build? So have a look at where you're living at the moment. Compare the way that your lifestyle is. Do you have children? Are you downsizing? 
Are you a first home buyer? So I would compare to what you're living in at the moment, start to get a, a general shape of what you're looking for. That would give you an idea on what size home you're looking for. Based on that, I would then start looking at some land options. I would be transparent with the developer and obviously lean on them for their expertise as well. Some of the things to obviously consider as well, which a lot of people don't, orientation of the block. Hit me with that. Is it north facing, solar passive? It's, but which, which direction of the four sides need to be facing north? I would be looking at living areas. So, so okay, let's break it down. North facing, you should incorporate your living areas where possible. You've also got to take into consideration, are there any buildings on either side? Also, west facing, try and limit the amount of bedrooms or living areas that are potentially west facing. We all know what West Australian sun is like in summer. So there's certain ways to design the home to make it solar passive. So to keep it warm in winter and to help cool it in summer. So I would make sure that before purchasing the block, you've at least engaged with a builder by this stage to chat about potential designs that may suit the block. Often a lot of people make the mistake of purchasing the land with a bit of a design in mind. They haven't necessarily located that on the block and then they find out that they've got a a rear living plan and a south facing block which isn't really going to suit a solar passive design. And will be expensive for years to come in terms of electricity costs. Also the state government has just pushed back the new six star energy efficiency requirements so I think 2022 we will see that come into effect so that's going to change the landscape quite a fair bit. I think we may see the introduction of upgraded glazing requirements. We're already seeing in newer states, say Alcamos Beach, for example, where they are pushing for solar. That can add costs. Absolutely, absolutely. So but it also makes it that much more pertinent which block you get on that street, which way it faces and where what its elevation looks like. Another thing when choosing the right block, it's also important to work out what types of homes are being built in this area. So you have a $450,000 budget, but you want to build in... Let's use Belcada as an example. Land prices are around the 350k mark for... It's about $1,000 a square meter there at the moment. What you want to avoid is going and putting a $180,000 home on a $350,000 block. You don't want to be the, the only... The house sing- in the best street. Correct. And the opposite too. You don't want to be building a two-story home in, say, Baldivis, where bank valuations, for starters, aren't going to stack up. No one can afford it. No one's going to pay for it. Exactly right. So it's important to get a scope of what you're trying to build. Meet your market. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Do your research. Realestate.com is great for median house prices. Look at the recent sales data, what's being sold in the area, and start to paint a picture of what you should be building there. Okay. I want to address one of the biggest shams in house and land package industry, and that is on realestate.com. You look on realestate.com in the house and land suburbs and it's most mostly dominated by listings of land lots and you'll see that could be lot 156. It won't be an actual address. It'll be lot 156 Smith Street and it'll be a photo of a brand new house that hasn't actually been built with a price of a house and land package price that for my experience is totally unrealistic. You'll never get the house on the photos for the price that's been listed. Can you give some advice to people to make sure that they don't get caught in that trap with their expectations that for that particular price in that budget, it might be $429,000, which is very uh, convenient for stamp duty uh, thresholds. They're actually not going to get the $600,000 house that's been put on the photos. It's, it's, it really is misleading and deceptive conduct, but it's just not being picked up by the state government. Yeah, you, you, you are right. I, I guess it, it can be difficult for the 
builders to provide photos of the home that the clients are actually getting. For starters, they don't build those homes and put them on display. We all know display homes are, you know, top of the line. They're designed to look amazing. There's an extra hundred grand that's been spent on them in most cases. So, what I would say to that, I would always recommend going to the builder's showroom, having a look at the specification. I'd ask for a detailed list of inclusions and I would compare between the different builders because yes, it is going to be very different from the photos. They're all doing it. That's the thing. They are. They yeah. are all doing it. I would also recommend go and see a home under construction. Ask the builder for what I'm looking at spending, show me something that you're building for one of your clients. Walk through it, see the construction site, the way that they operate. What are the inclusions like? How is the quality? That's going to paint a very clear picture of what you're getting. Looking at these photos on realestate.com, for example, is not the right way to go about it. At the end of the day, for me, when you think about the land portion, it might be $250,000, which is pretty standard for a lot of land estate prices, right? And then the price is 430 all up. So what the builder has included is the price of $180,000. That's not getting you a lot of house. Not really. Again, going back to Balcata for a perfect example, you're not going to build that home on a block in Balcata. It's impossible. The client is not aware of the land cost component. So in that way, yes, it can be misleading. So again, it all comes back to what I suggested. Firstly, by doing your own research going out and, and sourcing the land first and then engaging builders. Because to be honest, a lot of these homes aren't going to stack up in some of the areas. So often builders will put the cheapest possible house on a good block in a good area to meet a price point. I'm yeah. not saying everyone does it, but it does happen. Yeah, it, it shoots them in the foot at the end of the day because no one wants to live in the worst house on the best street if it's going to be for their, their own home, right? That, that is correct. So if that's the case, if $180,000 for that build portion isn't realistic, what is a realistic price that you're seeing as a total contract price for most people who are building their, their home on a 400 square meter block, for example, in a standard suburb? Look, it really depends which suburb. Um, as I mentioned before, you want to make sure that you align the build price with the area. So let's talk let's talk some suburbs let's just say a piara waters a cavisham a southern river an Averley, something like that where it's sort of you know it's affordable normal family normal first home buyer sort of price point where to be frank they thought they could get it for 430 as a house and land what's it probably actually going to cost them at the end of the day that you're seeing just in a general quote when when michael lazaro gets the quote put together and his best price comes on the table and it includes all the spec that most people actually want What's that price probably going to end up being? Okay, so PR Waters, you're probably looking around 550 on a 450 square meter block. That's for a good quality four by two. Obviously, you see homes advertised a lot lower than that, but again, what are you getting for that money? So this is a good quality home. You won't have the need to spend $20,000 in pre-start like some of these packages that, that won't have painting, they won't have flooring, they won't have blinds. Air so, conditioning. All that stuff. Exactly right. So Averley, you're probably looking more so around the 500 mark for a 450 block. Mm. Bell Divers, for example, I would be looking at keeping that under the 450k mark. So and that that means that really that house, I'm I'm sort of comparing them in my head to what the land prices for those areas would be. You're probably looking more like 250 for the build contract, correct. right? That's right. And that's for what most of us normal people would expect for all the, you know, not bells and whistles, but just a good comfortable home that we'd like to live in. Exactly right, yeah. And that seems to be where the market's at at the moment, that sort of mid-200 range. So. Isn't that crazy when you compare it to the stuff you see in the newspapers where you've got this beautiful display home and it says house from 149000 Yeah, yeah. Again, maybe some misleading marketing there, so... Um, but it's not one builder. It's every builder in Perth in some at some level. And today is really just about being able to inform uh, our listeners 
all that information in the most upfront way so that they can be prepared that though this is the market this is this is the industry when we go in we all want to build our own home at some point in our life probably let's just be prepared for what those costs are going to be because they are you know they are very competitive these days especially in this market all the builders their margins have dropped down to really tight points so it's not like people are getting ripped off for what they're getting it's just that uh, by the time you get to that quote it might not be represented initially by what expectations were six months earlier I think categorizing the builder is really important. So if your budget's 220000 I would be looking at more of the entry-level first-home buyer brands. Say if your budget is mid-twos, possibly to the high twos, or even up to 300s, I'd be looking at sort of that, that mid-tier builders. You probably wouldn't go above that for a project, house and, home. For yeah. a project home. So yeah. um, I would just make sure that you categorize the builder. What you don't want to do, you don't want to be seeking quotes off entry-level builders versus higher spec builders so because it's not apples with apples it's not no it's very different what's different though about it i would say first of all design so the complexity of the design see one of the things that you'll see with a lot of first home buyer builders there's a door missing off the laundry you have a very limited amount of kitchen cabinetry your garage is a bare minimum size yeah you're just opening the doors yeah there may or may not be robes in the bedroom so they're some of the things to consider so back to your point before about builders advertising a low price i think that it's so competitive here at the moment that we've got into a bit of a price war where if builder a is advertising at 179 and builder b is advertising at 229 builder b may have a lot more inclusions but automatically they might price themselves out of the market because the market doesn't understand what that fifty thousand dollars is really representing exactly right so the builder goes to the lowest common denominator and says well look we'll advertise at 179 as well and whoever can get them through the door first will then start having those conversations about what it is to get to where people's expectations are. That's exactly right. And I think that that's why building can sometimes get a bad name from people saying this wasn't included, that wasn't included because they've gone to build a number A at the 179 price tag with the expectation that the inclusions might be where builder B is at. And often you will find that people would prefer to have automatically gone to builder B because the, I guess they're... The process, the ethics, the trust, they were there from day one. Absolutely. And you're then meeting the client's expectations. So just be realistic with your expectations. Do your research. If it's not in writing or it's not drawn on the plans, it's not included. So that's where a lot of people become unstuck. You're making the biggest investment of your life. So it's important that everything is documented. Don't go off the word of anyone saying, yes, there's aircon included. Yeah, it's not referenced anywhere in the quote. So let's pull it back a little bit with regards to, look, we're in early 2020. Uh, we're in the midst of this COVID virus where got a building industry that is in some ways on its knees but still cracking on would you rather be building today or five years ago i'd prefer to be building today i think that we're seeing record low prices interest rates have been slashed money's being pulled out of the stock market so where are you going to invest your money and i feel like as soon as we get past covid19 we're going to see a sharp incline in the property market. And prices? I think so, yes. We've already seen signs this year. Our inquiry has picked up tenfold. So it has slowed a little bit in the last week due to uh, the media and what's been happening. But I think now is a great time. I feel like there's going to be deals out there in the coming months for people. Do your research. Like I mentioned before, there are some bargains to be had. What I've probably would also observe is that we've had five years of builders having to slash on internal costs slash on staff and really that most of the builders even the biggest builders in perth right 
they are at the bare skeleton minimum of staff. So the second that numbers really start creeping up again in terms of inquiries and jobs coming on board, prices probably have to increase pretty quickly to be able to have the builders start to afford to employ more draftsmen, more schedulers, more contracts, admin people. Uh, it's inevitable, I think. It's going to be a bottleneck. Prices will go up, I can tell you that, and it will happen very quickly, more so for the suppliers that have been looking after us for the past five years. Mm. So they've been doing it hard as well. Everyone talks about, about the builders doing it tough. You know, spare a thought for the suppliers as well. So that's where we're going to see it, first of all, from the suppliers. It will then filter through to our trades on site. And of course, we're then going to have to... Employ you know, more that, overheads. Yeah. Exactly right. That will be reflected in the pricing. So... It is inevitable. When that happens, I don't know. But this, again, goes back to why now is the best time to build. Michael, thanks very much for coming in today. I think we're definitely going to have to have you in again. I think I want to talk about, give some top tips from your experience on navigating this whole space, getting your best bang for your buck, that process of negotiating with your sales rep and your builder on getting the best price. So if you can put a client's hat on next time, it'd be, I think, a really insightful chat next time about just some top tips, I think, on, on getting from start to finish with the least stress, but also the best value. Absolutely. Appreciate you having me on here and uh, yeah, looking forward to coming back next time. Thanks, mate. Suburb Spotlight time now. We are featuring one of Perth's most blue chip suburbs. You've probably never driven through there if you don't have a friend in there. It is a maze of a suburb, a labyrinth, and on purpose. It's a very private place and full of some of Perth's nicest homes and lifestyles. We're talking Kulbinya today, nestled in between Yokine and Menorah, that sort of area, just along Walcott. The one lady we can talk to about that is Kulbinya's number one agent. It's Jodie Marcel from Belcourt. Jodie, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, Trent. Jodie, let's start from the start. Let's start from the first subdivision of Kulbinya as a suburb. How did it come about? What was it beforehand? Let's go right back to before you and I were born and and what life was like then and how it's evolved today into the beautiful estate that it is. Well, Trent, you're right because um, neither of us were born um, when um, Kulbinya was established. It was actually originally a part of Mount Lawley. And in 1953, it was renamed Kulbinya, which is actually an Aboriginal term for mistletoe. Having said that, I have driven around these streets for more than a decade now, and I haven't actually found any mistletoe. (laughs) But there is a mistletoe lane, which runs just off a dare parade. So a nice little tip of the cap. It it is. That's correct. And interestingly, the dare parade is the only uh, street that is zoned R60. So that's the only street in the suburb that is zoned for multi-residential Well, I think dwellings. it's important to reference that. Why do you note that? What's the contrast? What's the 99%? 99% of the suburb is R10. Wow. Isn't um, that interesting? R10 is what we would expect out of a peppermint grove. Exactly. With, with a restrictive covenant on top of that. Wow. So those titles have the same restrictive covenant on all, on all properties that I you know, always have to um, highlight and alert people to when they're looking to purchase. What's the, um, explain the effect that has? A single residential dwelling only. Even if the property is 1,000 or 1,200 square metres, only one dwelling can No be. granny flat? Look, there are a few granny flats, but um, subject to planning okay. within the city of Stirling. So we're cert- essentially, we can't cut up land and we can't go and put a duplex or a side-by-side sort of old duplex half. There's no flats. Every single one of these houses, bar one, some on one street in Corbinia, are single residence, quarter acre, sort of square meterage as an average houses. Exactly. And, uh, and I look, I think over time that has been the general appeal. 
the overall appeal and attractiveness of the suburb. I agree. I think that it's a little bit of an oasis amongst, and obviously, you know, this is what I do every day. I'm in development and urban infill, but I, I appreciate what Corbinia and Menorah have to offer in that they really are a stronghold for that single dwelling, quarter acre family lifestyle in the area because it's just going to keep getting more dense up and down Walcott and Beaufort and those sort of places, isn't it? Exactly. And it is, um, it's really what uh, a lot of families yearn towards. Tell me about the streetscape, the setup of the streets. It's not a metric system, is it? No. In, in fact, in it's fact, quite the opposite, isn't it? You can actually get lost there. <laughs> I've been <laughs> lost. You. I've been lost in Corbinia before. It's a very pretty drive to, to meander through the suburbs. It isn't called a park suburb or a green suburb for nothing. There are some beautiful established trees. Uh, so the, tree, the, the streetscape is, is quite beautiful. In fact, the original planners or developers of that subdivision really quite early on had the idea that every resident of each dwelling should have access or walkability to a green space, which was actually quite avant-garde really at the time. So there are some beautiful, beautiful little parks, both opposite and overlooking residences, but also some very private parks that many people wouldn't know anything about. Tell us about these. It's very hard to explain. I would actually urge listeners to look on Google Maps satellite view for this. Good luck explaining it, Jody. Go for it. <laughs> I'll try. Look, apart from the the many beautiful parks that you can drive around in Corbinia and actually see, there are some especially private ones. A couple that I you know can mention off the cuff is between Bradford and Hartwell Street. There's a particularly lovely reserve. Similarly, between Warralong Crescent and Waluna Street, there is a beautiful park which really is only accessible. M- mainly from people's boundary fences. The so backyard. They're from their backyard. So a lot of these people will have gates, back gates, that the kids will literally just open after school and play a game of cricket, a game of footy, whatever's in season at the time. Residents will come together of an evening and have a glass of wine and share the day's events with each other. Dogs will frolic around. It really is a, a very special place and very communal community oriented. So to be as clear as we can, instead of everyone's backyard fence starting up against each other or sharing a backyard fence, you would have a street that might be in a triangular, uh, a set of houses that might be in a triangular sort of shape or a circular shape where everyone's backyard actually backs onto a common park. Exactly. Yep. Um, And other than going through a little lame way, there's no other way. You wouldn't know it exists. So there are some small access ways, either at the start or finish of a road, but most of the time, unless you have friends who you visited or you actually are living in that location, you don't know about these private parks. That's fantastic. That's, That's the sort of old school community neighborhood lifestyle that I think we miss a little bit, isn't it? Absolutely. Maybe it's coming back. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> not, not at the moment, but uh, I think uh, definitely in the future, we'll probably value a little bit more after this COVID period we're in right now, that ability to interact with our neighbors. And I think what I'll call being your office in that being so rare is, is pretty interesting. And we mentioned the street setup, right? It's really a labyrinth, isn't it? It's, it's triangles, it's circles. You couldn't just drive one straight line 
There's no main thoroughfare road from one side of the suburb to the other, is there? No, you mainly have local traffic. And so families are more than likely to feel comfortable with youngish children walking around in little groups, which is really lovely just to, um, you know, see young kids having the freedom to roam the streets with their friends on scooters or bikes because there is such low traffic. Now, look, this is not a cheap suburb. It's one of the higher median house prices in Perth, especially in the area just north of the city. It's therefore probably not your average first homeowner's accessible suburb. So what is the demographic we're talking about here? Who's your average buyer and seller? Look, the, the current median house price trend is, um, is just over 1.1 at the moment. That's still, depending on the condition of a home, that's still not really going to get you very much in terms of a livable a livable house, but sometimes you can find either a three by two or a four by two in need of renovation. There are distinct buyers in Corbinia. You've got your entry level home buyers, and they generally have a they're shopping within a price point. I'd say between around one point two to one point four million will actually give you an entry level home. Jesus, in Corbinia. That's right. Pretty hard entry level um, and, to reach, isn't it? And then, you know, mid ones, mid to high ones is is a home that, you know, you really don't need to do very much to. And then your premium homes are from $2 million. So $2 how million is our median so low? Is that just because the only ones that sell are probably in a state of disrepair? I think because there is such a low turnover mm. within Kulbinia, there are only about 600 homes within the suburb of Corbinia. So How many are selling every year? It would be, uh, you know... Not that many. Yeah. You know, sometimes you can have... Well, there have been times where maybe only a dozen have have In changed, yeah, some transactions. Ridiculous. So, so that, you know, median house price can be dictated by that. You don't have that high volume of turnover, and that makes a difference. Well, look, you've already sort of answered that price point question, really. Uh, but is there anything I could buy for six figures? I've got a great block at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, going back to my, I suppose, characterising or distinguishing between the different buyers um, in the suburb, you have your prospective purchasers looking for established homes and then, of course, your blocks. A, a block in Corbinia is sort of generally between around 750 to 900 square metres. They do uh, on the larger side. And so your block will be generally of higher value because the, the blocks are so large and because you can't subdivide them mm. there are lots of people that will that don't know the, the zoning in Corbinia and so when I have a block on the market they'll ring up and say is the property subdivisible mm. they get all excited mm. because they think oh well if I'm buying if there's a block for 1.1 I can subdivide it and there I've got a fabulous and I'll location. be able to afford it yeah exactly but that's not the case and so then within your block buyers you've got your premium block buyers and your what I you know entry level where you, you can still spend between 1 and 1.2 to 1.3 on a block. Then you have the the luxury, if you like, of just being able to build whatever you want on that home because Kulbinia is not subjected to the same heritage guidelines as far as redevelopment is concerned within the area that it's surrounded by too. So Menorah... Inglewood and Mount Lawley have uh, heritage-listed heritage yep. heritage homes, but also if you renovate a home in those suburbs or lucky enough to find a block, you do need to build within a federation style. You have to adhere to the guidelines of, of heritage precinct. Yeah. 
people that are interested in building more contemporary homes are attracted to Kulbinia for that reason. These homes can be demolished and they can... You've got some big um, houses in Kulbinia and that's why they're getting up into the twos in price. You're well, paying for a lot of house. Exactly. And, you know, it's with your premium homes, you simply have to do a summation too and say, well, if I were to actually be lucky enough to find a block now in this location... Mm and build the home that's there and the time taken to actually establish this home is, is going to be two years at least by the time you have your plans approved and, and you know, your building in place. Maybe there's something on the market you could buy today. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, maybe there is, maybe there's not. It's that, that tightly held, right? In terms of redevelopment, have you seen anything on Adair start to be upgraded to offer any options for downsizers? You know, it's a suburb that's got a lot of older people in it. Yes, that's correct. Look, there are already some really lovely, older-style Art Deco, smaller groups of apartments along Adair Parade. More recently, there have been a few properties. One that I'm thinking of along Adair was a duplex, a duplex pair, where the owner and developer uh, was able to demolish that and a complex of about 10 apartments was built there. How did that go? Um, Two-bedroom properties. I think a couple of them were sold, but from my understanding, quite a number are rented rented out. I would like to know whether that was the intention in the first place because if the owner wanted to sell them all, it would be surprising that there wouldn't be maybe a market of downsizers ready to stay in their suburb and and take up that new option of a smaller lifestyle in, in an apartment. Look, I think the key here, and if there are any developers who manage to get their hands on a parcel of land along a dare parade, the key is to is to actually build an apartment that is more spacious, I yeah. think. And is not, going uh, not to, a first home buyer's apartment. Exactly. And that is going to appeal to a, a discerning purchaser mm. who wants to stay in the area looking to downsize, where they may not necessarily have the luxury of moving their 12-seater dining room table into uh, you know, a smaller apartment but at least have larger rooms where they can still have the family over of an evening to entertain and and what have you. So I think it's really important when you are, especially in suburbs like Kubinia, and I'm sure there are many others, if you're looking to attract the downsizers in that area is, you know, have a couple of focus groups or speak to some agents in the area before you go ahead, demolish and put up your two-bedroom apartments which are then going to appeal mainly to either investors or young people. I think if you're going to be spending the money investing in a site, which would be a very expensive site on a dare parade, to therefore put in some density, that density needs to appeal to the local market. Why? One, they're the market that's probably going to have the money to pay for them in the first place because they're all selling out of their seven-figure properties. So if you can offer up three-bedroom apartments for a million bucks, but they're absolutely gorgeous and they're large and there's not much of a downsize in terms of floor space of the home rather just obviously removing the land component Mm -hmm. Uh, and they can sell their house for 1.7 mil move into an apartment for a mil and put 700 in a super that's the sort of lifestyle that people are looking to downsize into if you offer an apartment that would appeal to someone in their 30s or 40s or 20s even they're just not going to move even if even if it's a great great price I totally agree with you. And and what you just talked about, you know, a three-bedroom, two-bathroom option is a fantastic product and mm. it's just not offered. Does some work need area. to be done by the local council to, in a, even in a very, very small change of zoning, allow for something there? Because where are downsizers going when they get into their 60s and 70s in Corbinia at the moment? Oh, 
not. There are some surrounding suburbs that are quite appealing to a lot of owners that are living in Kulbinia at the moment. Moving just within a you know a kilometre or two either side doesn't necessarily mean an upheaval to their lives. So they've been shopping in the same areas for a long time and, and they will continue to do so. The Park Precinct of Yokine is a good option because the blocks are smaller if they do want to build their own property or they can look at a three-bedroom, say two-bathroom, single-level residence on about 400 square metres of land. Alternatively, North Perth and Mount Hawthorne. You know, Does Jundanaga look in as well through. for the townhouses? Townhouses, not so much unless there's a master suite downstairs. Yep. So, uh, you know, don't forget the people that have lived very happily and grown families up in, in Kulbinia really for the last 30 odd years or so are looking to downsize either to a single story or a townhouse with a master suite downstairs. So mm. yes, if the design and the layout works well, then that is attractive too. For the grandkids upstairs. Exactly. Great. Jody. let's move into the meeting house price. We've referenced it. I'd like to see what you're going to do with that because you've already forewarned how hard this is going to be for you, I think. <laughs> what is, again, the meeting house price in Corbinia and what would Jody Mazzell buy for that money if it was in her handbag today? As I said to you just earlier, it's just over 1.1 at the moment. That has come down considerably in that, you know, it was up around the 1.2 and and 1.3 in in years gone by. There have been a couple of properties just uh, on on the lower side of Carnarvon Crescent that recently sold, and they were actually sold around the million and 50 and 1.1. I think they were actually good buys, old character homes in need of a little bit of work. But I think that the the people that, that bought those homes you know bought well and and I think those would have been young families looking to establish themselves in the area alternatively a great block there are a couple on the market at the moment hovering between the 1 to 1.1 mark and uh, it really just depends on your shopping budget whether you are entry level to purchase an established home or whether you have the money to to build a beautiful forever home with million dollars at least as your base yep. and then so 1.1 is not really your forever home price but at least it gets you in the suburb exactly and and it is very sought after as well if you know we haven't really discussed school zones and what have you but Corbinia Primary School and Mount Lawley High School are uh, very sought after and attractive as far as public school options private um, schools are they going into the city Trinity Mercedes uh, Perth College there's a good bus route actually down Holmfirth Street into the city for Trinity and, and Mercedes so quite a few private school attendees throughout the suburb but Mount Lawley is is very popular in the area there are a lot of children that attend both Kulbinia Primary School and and then following on from that Mount Lawley. Sounds like a lifestyle that a lot of us would uh, aspire to achieve at some point especially for a growing family. It is very family friendly Um, you know just a couple of tips by the by that that people wouldn't really know too is that um, Kulbinia in the past has had what is really quite sweet is a walking school bus so parents take turns as a roster to pick kids up along the way along streets and the kids all walk to school together uh, which is really lovely to see if if you're driving around there and they do host the most fabulous Halloween parties so the decorations up, um, you know, particularly around Holmfirth and Elstree Ave of a Halloween evening are quite outstanding. Now that is, is something quite unique in Perth 
you'd like to think that we have that culture in Perth, but I don't see it a lot. Maybe in the new estates with young families and you know Americanized ideas, but to have it right in the middle of of Perth in a suburb like Corbinia, I think because of its safety, because of these private parks, these very safe streets that no one drives on really, you can have that lifestyle that we all still wish we had from 30, 40 years ago. Sure. Jody Marcel, thank you very much for coming in and chatting about a very unique suburb in Perth. I look forward to having you in again. Please grab Yokine and Menorah and we can, we can chat more about those suburbs. I certainly will. Thanks for having me, Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!